Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Itchdecker. And I'm Oliver Brady. And in this podcast, we watch movies, TV shows, and sometimes read books, if, you know, again, if I've ever managed to learn, uh, that depict the medieval world. And we're going to look at stuff that's both historical fiction and medieval-esque fantasy. And then we kind of pull it apart. So we talk about what to get right, what to get wrong, and what they tell us about how the modern people see the medieval past. Sarah, why did you decide you wanted to do this podcast? So I want to do this podcast because I'm professionally a medieval historian. I have a PhD in medieval history. I teach medieval history. And most people are wrong about the Middle Ages. And the reason they're wrong is because they see medieval movies and the medieval movies are all wrong. Um, yeah. But every now and then things are right. So I heard from you that the thing that most people get wrong is that they don't think that Primo Nocta is a thing. Many people incorrectly believe that they use Prime Noctis, which is the correct Latin for what it would be if it existed. Many people believe that's a thing. They are because, incorrect. It is not but, a thing. I, Sarah, I keep saying this to you. Like, of all the things I've learned in this podcast, there are three things I know about the medieval past. It sucked to be a peasant. There were roving bands of very violent bandits. And Prima Nocta was a thing. All of those things are wrong. Well, it did suck to be a peasant. The second two <laughs> things are wrong. <laughs> now, you may have heard somebody laughing in the background there because we've got a guest. Sarah, I think it's only right that you introduce our guest this week because you know her almost as well as I do. Yes. So we have a very special guest today. Um, our guest today is my mother, Beth Greenfeld. Beth, mom, why don't you say hi? Hello, everybody. And I don't know what prima noctis means. It's the right of the first night. It's the thing where. Oh, people, yeah, 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 yeah. I knew that yeah, wasn't right, but I didn't know it had a Latin name. And I don't know why it should if it didn't happen. Well, because people started talking about it in the early modern period where I'm they sorry. still spoke Latin. I'm sorry. It sounds like your mother has a very good and valid point there, Sarah. They still spoke Latin in the early modern period when they made it up. If they did not make it up, it was they something did. that definitely happened. Braveheart. Is a true and historically accurate. Braveheart would never lie to us. It's part of Jewish history too. It's, and it's one wrong of our there myths. too. No, but how is it? Know. How is it part of Jewish history? Because we all say that one of the reasons, because Jews tend to believe that the night of wherever they lived came and raped the women, and that's one of the reasons why um, some Orthodox women shave their head the night they're married. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, it's definitely also not a thing that ever happened. And it's completely and utterly relevant to the movie we're about to talk about, which is 2003's Timeline. Now, Sarah, have you ever seen the Fast and the Furious movies? I have. I recently watched all... Are there eight now? There's eight of them. That's yeah. all she talked about all during lunch, yeah. Because I was trying to explain why I liked Paul Walker now. Because that's the reason I brought it up is because Paul Walker is the hero of the movie. He is with his great hero's journey of discovering he thinks the Middle Ages is interesting. Uh, in fairness to himself, he does get a PhD in medieval history in about like a month at the end of the movie. Okay, so this is why I'm here. Because I read the book and this character does not exist in the book. There's somebody what? named Chris... <laughs> who is not the son of the guy who disappears in the past. Mm -hmm. And he is a medieval historian, and he studies watermills. 
he sounds and he like loves a, history. He sounds like a perfectly legitimate scholar, unlike this person who, as we'll talk about in a little bit, is basically going on his father's digs so he can hit on women. Right. Well, he does hit on some women, though not on this one. But no, he's doing research and marveling at how um, the the medieval people had more technological innovations than anybody, including the English in the Industrial Revolution. They did. It's very impressive. Mm, they were very impressive. Um, I also like to think that they cast him as Chris, and he was meant to be Chris from the book. His name but, is Chris, but he has a different mm-hmm. last name. But when they discovered uh, that Paul Walker had been cast by the studio, the director was like, yeah, we're going to have to do a rewrite here because nobody's going to believe this guy is a historian who's interested <laughs> in water mills. Not with those baby blue eyes and blonde hair. Yeah, he doesn't look like anyone who is in my PhD Francis program. Francis O'Connor plays Kate. Uh, I have never seen Francis O'Connor in anything other than this, but she is the second build. Um, and I've been told reliably by my co-host and our guest that she was Fanny in Mansfield Park. Yes, uh, Jane Austen, maybe. she's. I think she's pretty good, actually. I haven't seen it in a while, but she was pretty good. Excellent. Then we've got the man himself, Gremlin Battler, Jared Butler, as Andre Marek, which every time I see the name written down, just gets more and more ridiculous. It's a, a weird a name. Scottish, a Scottish actor no. playing a Scottish character. Well, that's the Andre problem. Marek. He's supposed to be Dutch. Ah. <laughs> and then his name makes a lot of sense. It would right. make a lot of sense to be Dutch. There are uh, also a lot of things that would make more sense if he was Dutch, but instead he's Scottish. <laughs> we have Billy Connolly, uh, the professional stand-up comedian who doesn't tell a single joke in this movie, uh, playing Professor Johnson. We have David Thewlis, uh, or as I like to call him, Remus Lupin. <gasps> Lupin! As uh, Robert Doniger. Lupin died. I can't believe it. Like everyone making like, Spoiler going alert. crazy, yeah, but like going crazy because one of the twins dies. Like Lupin died and Tonks died. Like, come on, that's more. And important. they have a kid. It's so sad. They've got a kid. She's apologized, but she doesn't mean it <laughs> for killing them. Every year on somebody's anniversary, she apologizes for someone she killed. Weird. With Tonks and Lupin, she apologized for two deaths that year. She should. She should apologize all <laughs> the time. She should. Um, Dobby was a bad one. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, Dobby yeah. should have died in the second book. Oh. Oh. Get rid of him. Oh, he's just so <laughs> oh, weird looking. Really? Yeah. You hate Dobby? I hate Dobby. Oh, I just, no. There's <laughs> something so creepy about him. Like, and then Krieger or whatever. Is it, is it Creature? Krieger? Creature. Yeah, he's just so. Like, oh, I can't Did even you not cry when Dobby died? Yeah, I cried through, like happiness like you know there's happy tears to come sometimes you're like yeah i'm not crying because i'm sad i'm happy dobby died i don't believe you (laughs) no i was it was probably real tears big fat ugly tears because dobby (laughs) died um then we get neil mcdonald's i like to call him mr bad guy because he's always a bad guy as uh frank gordon yeah he is very good and justified i highly recommend whichever season he is in of justified which might be season four but might not be uh playing a fantastic villain uh, he he plays a fantastic villain just about everything. He just has that creepy look to him. He's like a real Dobby. <laughs> no, it's that he's got a neo-Nazi thing going on. Like, he's so blonde. He does. Square face. Yeah. He's in Band of Brothers, and he's really, really good in Band of Brothers. Mm. Um, then we got Michael Sheen, and it takes me a little while to figure out it is Michael Sheen, because he's played like a, a tough, badass character. Right. Um, who's got and the he's coolest in a costume. name. 
Yeah. I mean, he doesn't look like a prime minister or anything. He doesn't, no. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, the period costume, I think, is kind of working for him. It does. He looks looks tough. Yeah. He doesn't look like Wesley Snipes from 30 Rock at all. He doesn't, no. Um, Then we have Anna Freel, who around about 96 to about 2001 was like my big crush. Because she used to be on Brookside over here in the UK. Sorry, over here in the UK. I'm in Ireland, but close enough. Um, so over in the UK. Shame on you. You're I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very certain if any of my family listeners, I'm going to get a beating the next time I go home. Um, uh, and she's brilliant as the Lady Claire. Uh, I'm not sure why they cast a very... Um, she comes from Liverpool and she's got a very strong Liverpool accent. I don't know why they would cast her as a French lady. Especially because most of her personality in this movie is having a French accent. That's the entire thing. She has to be, oh, you're Lady Claire. Or Claire. Well, I think Lady they Claire. forgot the fact that in the book, she actually lives in England and spends the uh, entire book trying to get back to England. Which would make a lot of things make more sense in mm. this movie than they actually that would make- do. A lot of stuff. Then we've got uh, Martin Chakas, who's another just bad guy. I'm, that's how I'm pronouncing that. But there's a good chance either the C or the S is silent. <laughs> so. I have no guess. My guess would have been like Chakas. Yeah, I, I don't really know. Well, I'm going to bow down to superior language knowledge, Sarah. So we'll go with Chakas. Um, and he's playing William DeCare or William Decker, who is... well. Give we'll away find the out end! <laughs> we'll find out as we go along <laughs> why he's got two names. Um, and I said, we were supposed to introduce a guest here. Uh, how do you pronounce your second name, Beth? Greenfeld? Please I don't. said it correctly before. Please don't. But call me Beth anyway, and or Dr. Beth, whatever. <laughs> okay, so Dr. Greenfield. No, no, uh, no, no. <laughs> Beth is fine. Beth is fine. Okay. Beth so we're going fine. into our first section, and uh, now I'm embarrassed about this, because this has been fun when me and Sarah do this on our own, but now I have to do this little bit with somebody else watching. Where we're going to recap the movie. And as always, our sections have a little musical sting to bring us in. And we are still too lazy to have actually got anybody to do it. So again, I'm going to sing Enumeratio in a very bad voice. I'm going to go, Enumeratio. (laughs) Solid. You're not going to sing like all five pages. All five pages we open with a classic sarah how do we open the movie we opened with what i would describe as a classic look how violent the middle ages scene um so essentially you have this man running through the woods there's a medieval knight who cuts him down but then he disappears and reappears in 2003 where he's nearly hit by a car um, you see the very prominent gmc logo so i guess they decided to fund some product placement in this movie it's a big Jeep, um, and it, I, I love the fact that one second it's two horses, and then it's the GMC Jeep, and you're like, yeah, it is a natural progression that we've gone from two horses to a giant Jeep. Horsepower. It's a, horsepower, exactly. It's a beautiful, beautifully well-done scene. So what happens is uh, this guy just kind of jumps from the medieval setting that we're seeing, and he's suddenly in the modern thing. The guy pulls in, takes him to the hospital, and we get to meet. Neil McDonough, who comes down and says, I'm his friend. And he was working for us with the ITC Corporation. And uh, they're going to become our, well, our bad guys would be a way to describe them, maybe. Yeah, definitely. And we also learn that he is not only wounded in the way that we saw, 
every bone in his body is essentially out of alignment, that there's this kind of weird gap in his bone and his tissue and basically every part of his body that shouldn't be there. So yeah. you know something weird is going on. Yes, and the one show- of the weird things is that there's a woman doctor who figures this out and she is somehow turned into a man doctor. Of course she is. <laughs> Well, it's a modern society, Beth, and anything can happen. If people choose to do that, that's okay. We don't have to judge them for it. But um, <laughs> what happened as well is I took a screenshot of this and I showed it to my friend who's a doctor. And I was like, so this is the guy's aorta. And my friend just starts laughing his ass off. And I said, why? And he goes, if that was somebody's aorta, they wouldn't have taken two steps before they died. And then I realized that it does it clear not lining up like the aorta is split. Yeah, so, that's what yeah. they yeah, right, that's like, why, the isn't blo- why isn't his blood coming out? That's what I'm saying. It's like you wouldn't be able to go running in the woods. You wouldn't be able to go running anywhere because you would, you'd literally get three or four steps before your heart would explode. So I think actually this is about time to mention. Um, Ollie, today you have relevant expertise in some of the material of this movie. I know. I've never been so excited doing this podcast as to say that uh, this is a movie that's set in two time periods. One of them meant to be the modern day or the modern day 2003. And the other one back in is 1356, I think, they jump back to yes. Castle Guard. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, the modern day stuff, um, the ITC Corporation is doing lots of uh, physics related stuff. And uh, it turns out I have a PhD in physics. Yes. So for the first time on the podcast... I actually get to actually talk about stuff, which I'm almost close to being an expert in, except for the fact that this is all made up science in every single way, shape or form. There isn't a single thing which is correct in it at all. And we'll talk about that as we come along. So the science might actually be worse than the history. Um, Having seen your notes, Sarah, I'm not sure if the science is worse than the history, but it's pretty damn bad. Okay. We can but do you can't blame end. Michael Crichton. I'm not going to blame Michael Craig. You can blame the movie people. We are blaming the movie people. Okay. And James Patterson. Not that we're sure why I'm going to blame James Patterson, but I just am. Just so why not? We find out that the corporation that the dead man was working for, that uh, Mr. Bad Guy Neil McDonough was working for, also are funding a dig in Castle Guard in France. Um, Sarah, is this a real place? It is not. That's, that's fine. I can live with that. That's far from the worst problem we're going to have in this movie. Okay, so it's not a real place. And the medieval dig that's happening there, does that does it look realistic? Uh... It is run by the worst medievalists in world history. It is headed up by a professor, Professor Johnston. This is Billy Connolly, who seems to do absolutely nothing on this dig and leave it all to his grad students. That actually might not be that unrealistic, but uh, <laughs> I've never worked on a dig, so I can't say 100% for sure. He sounds like the kind of professor who might go to the University of Southern California. No, they're actually all Yale medievalists. They're from the Yale History Department. Yeah, these like people, people would not have jobs. <laughs> um, the Yale History Department. Yeah, they're, they're all history Yalies. The Yale medievalists. <laughs> yes, which is where I received my PhD. So. What? Sarah, you got a PhD from Yale. I did. These people. And I would like to say that I got through like seven episodes without saying that I went to Yale. Listen, you you might have said I've not gone to Yale, but you've said when I was living in New Haven like eight times. It was relevant. (laughs) And her being a Yale historian is relevant to this. this, These people. Yes, because I can explain why they won't have jobs. Um... (laughs) 
So uh, we have Professor Johnston, who uh, what we learn about him is that he doesn't seem to really do anything on his dig. He has, however, brought with him his son for no apparent reason because his son hates the Middle Ages and doesn't know what he's doing. His son, who's played by the very handsome and very untalented actor Paul Walker. Um, now don't get me he's wrong, very I love him. The late Paul Walker. <laughs> the yes, late, the Paul, late Walker. Paul Walker. Rest in peace, um, Paul Walker. Rest in peace. And he he does do a great job of playing Brian O'Connor in the Fast and Furious movies. But yeah, he's 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 bad, guys. He's not he's really he's not bad. a good actor. We also have Gerard um, I, Butler, who is very engaging as a tour guide. Like he genuinely kind of sucks people in with his stories of what was happening during the battle at Castleguard, this totally not real battle. And he's talking about Claire and how she was executed. And then that inspired the French. Claire was this um, French lady and she was executed and hung from the battlements. And this inspired the French to go to war and kill the English, which, you know, I'm always a fan of. Um, but, you know, he doesn't seem to be particularly good at history. No, he, throughout this, he, first of all, so he never actually says anything intelligent about medieval society or culture, just kind of spouts a bunch of, you know, stories which are interesting, but he doesn't really seem to have any real area of expertise or research. Like, I have no idea what he would be writing a book about. In fairness, Claire, we did just find out that he's from Yale. So Many we Yale can't... professors write books. We can't expect him to be able to write books as well. Come on, it's not, it's he too much to He actually has been spending many, many years in the book learning. Yeah, in the book. Learning, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Okay. Learning how to joust and all that sort of stuff so he can, and ride destriers so he can do all the medieval sports, athletic, war type things. Yes, in, in the book, oh, yeah. I've, I've also read the book, and in the book, Malik has a fascination with medieval swords and, and weaponry that's barely mentioned in the movie to just show right. him firing arrows once. But I mean, he's he's meant to be a duelist or a swords master. And, well, not maybe a sword master, but he's, right. he's definitely had experience learning how to use a sword, which comes up and is much more relevant in the book because he has to, I think he has two or three sword fights. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he's the only one who actually seems to yeah. know what to do with a horse or a weapon. And he does have a couple of sword fights in this, but... More problematic, or most problematic of all, none of these people, so we have Merrick, we have Johnston, we have Chris, who has no reason for being there, and then we also have Kate, who is Johnston's grad student. Of these many medieval historians who are working on a dig in France, none of them seem to know French, either medieval or modern. None of them seem to know Latin. And this comes up constantly and is made a point of throughout the movie. And I would like to just mention now that you cannot become ABD, you cannot advance to candidacy in the history department at Yale in medieval, in medieval history if you do not pass language exams in Latin, French, and German. See, that's why you have to wonder why movies do what they do. In the book, Marek is a fluent speaker of... Old English, Middle French, or it might be Middle English and Old French, Occitan, which is actually what everybody is speaking, and Latin. And there isn't a reason in hell they couldn't have had him speak any of those languages, even two words in the movie. There are subtitles in the movie when other people are speaking French, though they're not speaking the French they should be speaking, 
But there's right. not a reason in the world they couldn't show that Marek spoke all these languages. It's a strange decision. Right. Or you could just have, you know, what you have with Lady Claire, that people just speak in a French accent, and then you just assume they're speaking French. Right. They could have done that. Hmm. Um, just uh, on a small aside, I, uh, I lost my copy of Timeline. Um, or to be more accurate, I started watching my copy of Timeline and then I found out that I'd irrevocably, uh, irrevocably be uh, scratched the disc. So I had to skip to watching it in an, let's just say, nefarious means I found it on the internet to watch. And um, it had Italian subtitles every time they spoke French. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that was helpful. <laughs> but, well, I, I do know a little bit of French, not not a lot, a very, very tiny amount. Um, so I was kind of still able to follow along. It's not too hard to figure right. out with um, prepare the trebuchet in French <laughs> right. <laughs> or forward, forward to trebuchet. But um, yeah, it, as I said, uh, Marek is there, but none of them speak languages. Chris doesn't really give a crap about speaking languages because he's not there to do any sort of medieval study. He shows up not to hang out with his dad, but to flirt with Kate, played by Frances O'Connor. And by flirt with her, I mean ruin the medieval dig site that she's on because he just kind of shows up and spills beer all over it. Yeah, you're really not supposed to drink in the middle of an archaeological site while you're working. I think that's pretty much a no-no. Um, but so he shows up and does that. She also at some point, you know, asks him if he has any interest and he just kind of stares at her. So I guess the answer is no, <laughs> except for women. <laughs> She, she says, do you have any interest in the dig? And he says, you know what my interest is. And he's just looking at her. It's a horrible line. He just looks at her. And then she says, I was hoping you'd have another interest. And he just goes, no. <laughs> just, it's so bad. Beth, I know you really enjoyed the movie as much as I did. Um, did, you, um, did you find his acting to be credible in any way as a human? No, no. And frankly... The only time I really liked hers, I guess, was the first time she killed somebody. Oh, yeah. And was well, very it's... upset. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I mean, and I like the climbing and all that stuff because, you know, she's a climber. But his acting and the whole character were appalling. Yeah. No, I didn't like the movie as I as much as I liked it before I read or reread the book. And then the changes they made really, really annoyed me. Right. <laughs> Because they make, because they set up a movie. It's like they said, what can we do in this movie as opposed to the book that will really annoy Sarah Ip Decker? It almost <laughs> kind of feels like that. Uh, it, it did annoy Sarah as you were watching this. It uh, did. Because yeah, the I've heard that like I got, it was just like, what is this? What are we watching? Like we're watching Timeline. It's an amazing movie. I don't know what your problem is. But um. Stop we get a scene. Up to our guest. <laughs> I'm not sucking up to our guest. So then Chris, uh, oh. Chris goes to hang out with Marek, who is firing arrows because we need to know that he's good at firing arrows because that's going to come up in a total of one scene later on when mm. he seems to forget that he's got a bow and arrow with him. And we'll talk about that when we get to it. But uh, you get to Marek and he's like, oh, there's nothing of value in all of this history stuff. Then Mark tells us that we learn everything about ourselves through our history. Um, like history lets us know where we've come from and it lets us know where we're going. And, and it's all highfalutin stuff and who we are. And then he shows him this monument of a dead couple holding hands. And he's like, this guy has an ear missing. And it's all very nice. And when we find out who that monument is of at the end, we're like, oh, yeah, yeah. I love, I love that sort of roundabout stuff we're talking about. But then as they're talking, there's a cave-in. 
and they go up and it turns out that there's a tunnel that has been revealed and even though it's clearly about to collapse again they send Malik and Kate down into the cave and what do they find in the cave Sarah? So there are some really nice paintings. I couldn't get that good of a look at them. They looked like they might be Romanesque and that actually would make sense. Um, uh, But it's hard to tell. You really can't get a great look at them. They also find a box of documents, which none of these people can read because none of them know any languages. And I'm sure they haven't studied paleography. (laughs) The paleographist is not in the movie? What? The paleographist is not in the movie? No. No. Um, no That's Elsie. Elsie's not in the movie? Oh, is this another woman they cut out? Yeah. Elsie is a paleologist. Or no, not paleologist, paleographer. Somebody who's an expert in old Right. They call her a graphologist, but it's a paleographologist. At any rate, it's a. Well, apparently, this is another woman they didn't think needed to be in this movie. (laughs) Um, They also find, mysteriously, a modern bifocal lens. And soon they find that the only thing they can read on one of the documents is that it has a signature that's in 14th century ink, but written is the name of Professor Johnston and the message, help me. Help me. Now, this is the problem I would have with this particular bit. They've written down, help me, and he signs his name. Was he in a hurry? I it's, mean, yeah. Could, could he not write down an entire note? Hey, I have been transported back using time travel that ITC created. He dated it. Yeah, and he, he dated, dated it. it. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, why, why <clears throat> not, why not give a full explanation if you're writing? Because he's sitting in the monastery. It seems like he actually should have plenty of time. I yeah, think he it, thinks the people who are going to find it are his students. But wouldn't he want to give them more of an explanation? It's time travel. Help me. Yeah. But they would know that if he dated it 1346. I feel like he could have been a little more apparent. It also just, they, by the way, it's also in the scene where Chris's immediate response is, oh, my dad's a playing joke. a really funny joke. <laughs> if a medievalist wrote on a 14th century document that he found at an archaeological site, he would be banned from every archive But in Chris Europe. wouldn't know that. Well, yes, but he's an idiot. He also has a really odd relationship with his father, I just want to add. And simultaneously in this scene, he's like, oh, I have to go save my dad. But he also kind of hates his dad. But they also don't know then that it's really a medieval parchment. That's true. Well, they know it's a medieval parchment. They do. And they're certainly, they're sure about the ink. They're sure about the script on the rest of the parchment. No, they have tested it. They say that they tested the ink. Oh, okay, good. Um, And then there's a part where... Just before that, uh, his dad tells him that he can't have a relationship with Kate because a relationship between a medievalist and a non-medievalist will never work. It's doomed. (laughs) That's what's brought an end to his parents' marriage is that a medievalist and a non-medievalist could never find love. That was really funny. What are you talking about, you fool, Johnson? But they all go to ITC because that's where his dad had gone off. He'd been called off by the people who'd been funding him to go to a meeting and they show up and we find out that uh, Gordon, um, who's played by random actor, um, and Donager, who's playing by Rebus Lupin, uh, that they had created this 3D printer that was meant to send a copy of something to New York. Right. Now, this is the issue I have with this. They describe it as being like a fax and they said everything went according to plan. The object that they were meant to send 
disappeared from where they were, right? But never reappeared in New York and then just reappeared back in the office like a month or like six hours later or whatever it was. If you are sending a fax, your copy of the fax doesn't disappear. Your original doesn't disappear. If you're creating a 3D printer, your original is a it's it's like a file in your computer. It doesn't just disappear because you've created the product. So why were they happy with the fact that the original was disappearing in the first place? That is a good point. If that happened and I sent a fax, I mean, not that anyone sends faxes anymore, but if I sent a fax and then the document just disappeared and ceased to exist, I think I wouldn't be thrilled. And that's And that's the problem. That's what's happening. And then at one point, the physicist they have with them asked for an explanation. And the guy says, oh, we're sending it using... Um, electrons. We've turned it into a stream of electrons, just like a fax. It's not how a fax works. That's not how anything works. And you can't just turn something into a stream of electrons. You can if you watch The Fly at a very early age, <laughs> right? The trail of screaming cat atoms. That's the influence on the science in the movie. It is, but Michael Crichton's science in the book is at least a step up from the science that's in the movie. Right. But I suppose in a movie to go with shorthand, they don't have a chapter and a half to start explaining the actual physics behind what's going on. But even but in the book, that explains it's it, quantum. Right? Uh, once they say quantum, it's like the idea, oh, it's quantum. Oh. Quantum beings, I'll never understand that I can skip this paragraph. Quantum physics, right? When you break it down into its <laughs> simplest thing, says that everything can be treated like a wave, right? right? And if it can be treated like a wave, that means that it is it has the ability to be turned into pure energy and then reformed back into mass. Well, right? that's what they're doing, yeah. Except that that's not what they're explaining they're doing. Right. But even if they did do that, even if they did go to the trouble of what the fly does, it doesn't work as, oh, it's just a stream of electrons. That's... Like a stream of electrons is what we call electricity. That's all that is. Yep, you created electricity. Good job, guys, right? But you can't transport something Thomas in that way. But anyway, that's beside the point. That might be getting a little bit too much into the physics of this here. Physics is bad, people. No, the physics but, is important. I mean, it's half the movie when they're trying to fix it. Yes. So they ask them what's happened, and they say... Well, it turns out we've discovered a wormhole or an Einstein-Rosen bridge. Now, the idea of a wormhole is that a wormhole links two places in space. Um, and if it's linking two places in space, it effectively bends time, right? Where they bend space. And if you're bending space and time is measured relative to how far light travels and all this sort of shenanigans, whatever they want to do, that it, theoretically you would be able to move through time if you went from one side to the other. You would never be able to go backwards in time. Never? You would only ever you would never be able to go backwards in time. You'd only ever be able to theoretically at least. So not only have they created, first of all, a freestanding wormhole that constantly links two places in the universe and two times in the universe, they've actually managed to make it into a two way door, which isn't how an Einstein Rosen bridge would work. But hmm. other maybe than that, they know more than Einstein. That seems unlikely. That the it people is unlikely this movie who know literally nothing about either science or right. history. But did Einstein know about quantum waves or did they come later? Einstein uh, accepted quantum waves as okay. a real thing because... They're that old. Uh, well, it came from Schrodinger and the, the proof oh, that, um, that light was uh, acted as both a particle and a wave. Yeah. Um, the cat, which, you know, is it alive or is it dead? 
it's a cat. Nobody really cares. I know um, somebody not... went to Schrodinger's cat to a hey. party. Uh, oh a good, wow! Good costume. Uh, my my first ever pet was called Schrodinger. Um, he was a cat. He was lovely. And then you know, one day I opened the box and he was dead. That's oh, that's I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. Poor Schrodinger. Oh, poor Schrodinger. But in He's another so universe. In another universe, well, we're not going to go into multiverse theory, which is not quantum theory. But again, we'll we'll skip ahead and we'll say mm-hmm. the science here is bad. But they say we've managed to send people back. And yes. we've got this little tchotchke, which hangs around their neck as a medallion, where they can call themselves back any time within the six-hour period that the Einstein-Rosen Bridge is apparently open for. And the marker, I will say, is actually not the worst. It actually kind of looks like it could maybe be a kind of chintzy medieval pilgrimage badge. Like, not like a fancy one from one of the good pilgrimage sites. (laughs) Yeah, well, it could be. But from a castle guard site, definitely. I thought they worried the battery runs out after six hours. Not that the wormhole stays open, but that the battery runs out. Ah, so that's not what they say in the movie. Oh, okay. I couldn't remember Um, why they they just get back. They just say we've got a window, but they decide to go back anyway to try and get their dad. Um, they want to send these guys as medieval experts because they know that they're going to have to go and locate them and they're going to have to do some talking and they send themselves and three Marines, one of them being Neil McDonough, the other two being random guy one and two. And as soon as they are introduced as my Marines, you know straight away they are dying within the first 10 seconds of landing back down in France. Yeah, they are not going to make it. So of the medievalists that go back, they say we definitely need both Kate and Merrick to go back. Chris insists on going back with them despite the fact that he's utterly useless so he can save his father slash flirt with Kate some more. And then there's an additional medievalist named Francois And they say he needs to go back with them because, and they emphasize this, he is the only person who speaks a word of French. And we decided what's the real reason for sending Francois back? I think the real reason that they sent Francois back is that they want to give this young man a brief part in this movie because he is Kiefer Sutherland's half-brother. He is Donald Sutherland's son. I did not know this until you told me about two hours ago, and I'm still in shock that Kiefer Sutherland's got a brother. Me too. He he kind of looks a little bit like a taller, maybe even slightly more handsome Kiefer Sutherland. And I by can slightly more handsome, I mean actual handsome. Because Kiefer is, Sutherland, very as cute. much as I as much as I love you, Kiefer, not a handsome man. Haven't said that. Haven't said that. Three Musketeers, Kiefer Sutherland would get it. And Kiefer in this movie, I think, would be great because he would be really concerned all the time about how they're running out of time, which they in fact are. That's true. And he would be able to keep the countdown. Uh, I could imagine Kiefer Sutherland playing Malik in this movie really, really well. Um, that I think might have improved this movie. Uh, a lot <gasps> of things would have improved this movie. What? No. No, I'm president <laughs> of the Gerard Butler fan club and I take offense at that. I apologize. <laughs> at least they didn't we make all, him sing, so. We all love Gremlin Battler, but... Um, <laughs> We, we can't be going to this. So they go back into the medieval period. They're told, you're not allowed to bring any fancy weapons with you. Um, but they do get to wear really bad Renfair outfits. Uh, they go through the, worm, uh, the wormhole, which is one of my favorite things when I'm watching movies, is how fake science works in movies. Because everything is mirrors and stainless steel and beautifully organized and engineered. And at one point, 
they're inside the, the, the um, chamber uh, that's going to send them back in time. And it has spinning outside parts that lock to form a mirrored surface. Something like that. Yeah, yeah it's everything seems oh. to kind of spin back and forth in the mirrors and like reverse. And then that's how you know they're back. There's no reason for it. I can't like there's literally no logic as to why that happens. But what do you think this machine should look like? If you were going to do this, it would have to be an entirely enclosed inside a box. Okay. It would also need to be made out of incredibly strong materials because the forces at play in this are going to rip anything apart. These things look like stand mirrors that people have just kind of pushed into place huh. and are still on rollers. Right. Um, like I'd expect to see them in an Ikea. Like, Whereas the forces, as I said, that would be involved in the end of an Einstein-Rosen bridge or the end of a wormhole are immense. Like you're talking gravitational attraction of 60 70 000 gravities yeah inside a small located area <laughs> but you no know, hey we'll just we'll just use these stand mirrors to keep it from crushing the room well this being an ikea made uh, time travel machine might actually explain some stuff in terms of how quickly they uh managed to fix some things later because as they land in france um or land so they, as they show up in france they're in a river they all escape and then they get attacked by some English people. And it turns out that one of the soldiers had brought a grenade. And lo and behold, he's just about to set the grenade off when he gets shot with some arrows. And he hits his marker, goes back in to the modern time period. And the grenade blows up and destroys the machine. Which means that the rest of them can't come home. Right. But they, of course, don't know this. And so they, meanwhile, are concerned with trying to find Professor Johnston and eventually get out of there. We now get a series of scenes of which the point essentially is, once again, look how violent the Middle Ages is. I think it's look how violent the English are. Right. But I think that there is some relevance to the fact that it's in the Middle Ages. Right. But I I think the movie really wants us to take sides in this war. And it's a war that certainly Americans know zero about as a general thing. Americans know nothing about the Middle Ages. I think they might know some things. They certainly don't know anything about the Hundred Years' War, let alone that it took place during the Middle Ages. Right. So it's like any event, you have to get your audience to pick a side. Right. So they make the English so awful, and Francois really is there so that Oliver can kill him in that terrible scene. Right. And so you have somebody to root for. Otherwise, what? why do you care who wins this war? Yeah, that's true. So yeah, the English in particular are kind of cartoon villains. They get captured by the English. One of the ways you get to see the English are cartoon villains is that um, essentially the Englishman realizes that Francois is a French person and then says in French, uh, je suis un espy, I am a spy, and then says, oh, translate for me, to which he then says in English, I am a spy, and then he kills him. Yeah, it's a great before, scene. It is a very good scene. Um, before we get there, we get Marek meeting the one of only two women in the movie, and he randomly, just completely at random, he goes to ruins, and as Sarah knows, one of my favorite things in any movie is ruins. And there are some ruins uh, in 14th century France where he is hiding from the British, or the British soldiers, the English soldiers, and he discovers a lady is also hiding. Yes. And it turns out that that lady is Lady Claire. 
who mm-hmm. you'll remember is the woman who is supposed to die. These are also great ruins, by the way, because the ruins also look like they're from, like the building looks like it's from the 14th, from century, the 14th century. So it's kind of impressive. They're already <laughs> in such bad shape. They all manage to get caught and brought to the British garrison, um, which is in Castlegard, in the fortress of Castlegard, uh, where they meet Lord Oliver, played by Michael Sheen, who is busy sword fighting with some guys, showing that he is good at the old sword fighting. Um, and he gets to do a couple of scenes, as we said, we get him to kill uh, Francois. But I think he doesn't actually kill Francois himself. Yes. That's right. Uh, yeah, he gets the one other of his guy with him. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, and Lord Oliver's just kind of standing there. And then they get put into prison in what looks to be one of the worst prison rooms I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, that part actually is not that bad. I mean, you can, it kind of makes sense that it would be a kind of makeshift prison situation. Um, but it is a fortress that they captured from the French. So it seems like there should be a place somewhere that is a more effective prison than basically like locking them in the attic, which is more or less what Maybe they do. Maybe they don't have the keys to the dungeons. Well, Maybe. they're in the dungeons at the end when they're making the right. great fire, which we're going to find out that Johnson has been captured by Lord Oliver as well. And he's managed to convince him that he's a magister on his way to Dublin. And magister basically meaning some sort of magician type person. Um, somebody who works with... It actually basically means a around. scientist. Well, I'm not going to call him a scientist. Because he's creating Greek fire. He's an alchemist. Um, <laughs> he's doing magic science. Hey, alchemy actually provided the roots of what became yeah, chemistry. Because they discovered a bunch of things by accident that was real chemistry when trying to create gold out of lead, which they couldn't actually do. <laughs> Look at this other stuff we did. I don't care. I want that gold. <laughs> um. <laughs> so they decide that he's going to create Greek fire. Um, but they know that that's probably not a plausible plan. So they decide to escape. Uh, and I'll let you guys explain the escape scene because I have one massive problem with this escape scene. I can't do it because the book takes place over 36 hours and they are captured and escaped like 27,000 times. And it's very confusing. Okay, so I can explain <laughs> this. You can escape. do this one. Yeah, I can do this escape scene. So at this point, they're all together, except for the Marines who are dead. Um, So Kate is about to basically climb onto the roof so that she can then sneak in through a window and then um, let them out. She makes out with Chris, which is a little awkward when you consider that they're making out in front of his father and her dissertation advisor. Um, I would like to skip (laughs) both of those things. Um, But, you know, I guess that's fine. Um, it's creepy. She has to kill somebody. Um, she basically stabs him in the chest with an arrow, which I don't think would work. No, this is my big issue with this because the arrow she takes, not only does it not have a steel tip on it, it's just a sharpened piece of wood at the end. And specifically what she takes out of the thing is she stabs him straight through the center of the chest, which is your breastbone. And I don't know if you've ever actually put your fingers on your breastbone there. That ain't breaking for anything. It's no, but I've done it with a chicken. You're supposed to do it around it. It's too hard to cut the breastbone. (laughs) Exactly. And she goes straight through the breastbone, which is effectively just a pointy stick. Right. And And especially since there's no reason to think she's particularly strong. Exactly. And she, this guy dies in seconds. She is strong. She's a climber. She has that's true. She's a, a, lot very, of upper she's a very good climber, but Maybe that's not still a little that much, much in terms of being able to drive right. basically a wooden stick. But she does have some more chest. upper body strength than many other people. Yes. So they escape, but Merrick leaves the rest of the party to go back and save Claire. Oh, yeah. 
Um, so he ends up, he rescues her and then takes her back to the rest of the French army and her brother. He goes back to save Claire, um, despite the fact that they've nev- not actually spoken to each other at all. Because he that's how you know it's true love. French. Women aren't supposed to speak. So, <laughs> um, and then as we get to a point later on, it turns out that Claire actually does speak English, but um, yeah, she didn't reveal it. But they get uh, she, he goes back to save her. That means they've separated at the party. So now we have Claire and Marek in one side, and we've got Chris Johnston and Kate with Neil McDonough's character together. It's yes, the four and two split. Yes. That's one of the things that's confusing about the movie and the book. They keep changing who is hiding out with whom and who is lost someplace else. Right. So so Merrick takes Claire back to her brother, Arnaud, and the rest of the French army. Uh, he clearly has decided he has a thing for her. Um, they end up kissing in front of her brother once again. Which is... Medieval Very noble awkward. women. Yeah, medieval noble women mostly don't just make out with random strangers in front of their family members and also an entire army. They're, the other thing I like about this is he's pushing her across the river in a boat. And as he's pushing her across the river in a boat, he is trying to communicate with her. He finds out she speaks English. And he's like, oh, he's clearly trying to hit on her. He's like, are you with somebody? And even though she speaks English, her response is, I'm with you. Are you seeing anybody? I'm seeing you. Are you seeing anybody else? I think there could be somebody in the woods. Like, if you're at the point where you understand enough to answer the questions he's asking, you shouldn't have any difficulty with it. And also, there is a million other ways he could have asked those questions, which wouldn't have a double meaning so that's my issue is that i think those are both very modern ways to express that you're in a relationship of some kind Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so they wouldn't have been clear to her it wouldn't have occurred to her that that's what he meant and so that actually makes sense i could figure out in five seconds how to effectively ask if she was in some kind of relationship with somebody there are no relationships it's are you engaged to be married yes or you could actually i mean the other thing to say is that you know if you were not too worried about offending her you could just ask do you have a lover People aren't that prudish. One of my few remarks I will make now about Claire is that those two have no feelings for each other that we know about (laughs) in the book until we find out in the epilogue that they got married. Huh. They, at some point, Chris says, oh, she's looking at Marek like she thinks he's good looking. He doesn't see her at all wearing the same room. He's busy worrying about something else. So she's in the book. She has a fascinating character, which I'll talk more about later. But the romance and the romance between Chris and Kate, too, is is movie romance. Right. I really want to see Jared Butler just looking up at her and going, do you have a lover? <laughs> and like in a super creepy way. Oh, that would have been good. That would have been great. That would have been a great scene. Tell me they, but he knows she that. has a lover because she's sleeping with the abbot. Well, she doesn't in the movie. And the abbot is quite elderly and fat. So We, I will, I take offense at this. No Catholic abbot would be sleeping with. <laughs> Wait till we do the little hours. Oh, I can't even keep that funny. Of course they were. <clears throat> so Johnson and uh, Gordon get recaptured. 
and uh, oh. Chris and Claire escape. And this is one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie because they hide out in a building and the soldiers come along and go, let's go find them. Search everywhere. Except the building. It's like security starts <laughs> It takes them a off. really long time to go into the building. It takes them a long time to go into the building despite the fact they're right beside it. But when they do, they don't just sneak in. They kick the door down with a horse. And then Chris, who has been so concerned about his dad and that he's gone back in time to find him, because Kate has kissed him now, that's the only person he decides to save in the room. And he makes a run for it with her and manages to escape, leaving his dad and Gordon to be captured by the British. Yep, screw you, Dad. I just like, screw you. I know that's why we came back in time, but you're dead to me now. And it's at this point we find out that it turns out that one of Gordon's men has been living in the past all along. Yes, so... A man named William Decker, or William Decker. Yep. His entire disguise consists of essentially that name change and him putting on a British accent. And a hat. And a hat. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also... He gets manages to get himself up to a... To, basically be lord oliver's number two yeah which seems quite implausible especially because there's no real reason to think that he has any particular knowledge of military tactics or really any use whatsoever he likes to kill people yes but so do lots of people (laughs) that they already knew not random strangers that showed up he's in fairness to himself he is really fitting into the medieval period because he does love to kill people and as we all know, that's what happened all the time. <laughs> that's the only um, thing people did in the Middle Ages was just murder I, constantly. It was just a murder party. I was a little bit shocked here because, as I said, Neil McDonough is always Mr. Bad Guy to me. So I assumed at some stage we were going to get him betraying people. But nope, he just gets stabbed. Um, yeah, he doesn't make it then, long enough to betray anyone. <laughs> exactly. And as this is going along, Who, we Decker? also get a couple... No, no uh, uh, Gordon, Gordon, the Neil blonde McDonough. guy. The, oh, oh, he oh, kind of oh, looks oh, like oh, the Nazi. Oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we get a couple of uh, jumps back into the modern time to find out that they're trying to put the machine back together and their local physicist, um, who wasn't allowed to go back into the past, has been working with ITC to put it back together. But Remus Lupin is already getting pretty shady on the evil-looking character because he doesn't seem too invested in helping them get set up. Yes, and he seems very concerned about how, oh, no, this definitely isn't good enough. And, you know, maybe we should just not quite worry about it yet. Maybe we shouldn't quite try to bring them back. Um, There's also a bit here when uh, Gordon looks over at Marek, who's been recaptured. And he says, "Uh, yes, I'm from your time, but I was just a soldier. I'm not an expert in medieval history. Your entire survival depends on your knowledge of history. At which point Sarah sent me a message which says, oh, Jesus, Ollie, they're all fucked. (laughs) <laughs> yeah based on what we know about these people in this movie if their survival depends on the knowledge of history the movie is over like now <laughs> they're dead like, yeah. they might as well just quit now Marek should just put his hands up and go might as well kill me well yep. the problem with that is that Marek's knowledge of history is what should have made him not do anything to save Lady Claire that also is I mean, the that, case that he's the, also changing history that. and this doesn't seem to be a problem to anybody because what they actually say in the beginning is essentially that the French win the Hundred Years' War or, you know, are able to, like, stave off the English because of uh, the death of or Lady Claire. battle. And, uh, I mean, they make it sound like it's a real, like, major turning point oh, that, you know, has very long-term repercussions 
and that it's essentially what allows them to drive out the English permanently. And that seems like a kind of problematic thing to change. Again, again, I understand I hear all you're saying stuff, and as a historian, you wouldn't want to change it. But Anna Friel is very pretty. She is, and so she seems mean. very nice, and she History has a French accent. History be damned. Like, Jared Butler wants some. It would be nice um, if she had more of a personality than a French accent in well, this movie. At one, point, at one point, she goes, oh, mais non. <laughs> like, if randomly, everything else she says in that scene is English, and then she just goes, mais non. <laughs> Which is, I think, but no. Yeah. I think it's what she's trying to say. But, uh, yeah, it's it. Is it in the movie where she talks about why she's wearing those rags and peasant clothes instead of pretty gowns? No. No. She's You're just sure? basically being a spy. Yes. Yeah. Because she, she is in those rags and peasant clothes. It never the whole says movie. why. But I thought she compl- didn't complain but made light of it. It was a cute scene. I think all she said was like, oh, we've always been fighting the English since before I was born. Which is also yeah. seems off. That's... That's a very good French accent there, Sarah. You could cast me in this movie since that's just she's just a British person putting on a French accent. You would look more French than she does anyway. Um, I get French all the time. <laughs> uh, we then get to one of my favorite scenes where Chris and um, Kate show up at a monastery, the same monastery that they've been doing their digs on earlier, and they decide that they're going to go find the secret super hidden tunnel that nobody really knows existed, especially Chris, because despite the fact that he has no history knowledge whatsoever, tells Kate that she's wrong. She's like, I'm going to go find the tunnel. He's like, there is no evidence this tunnel exists. How would you know, Chris? You're not a historian. You literally only showed up at a dig to flirt with this woman. Now you're just negging her. It, literally, you're negging her ability because she has effectively found chambers and evidence that the tunnel is there. Yeah, so he's um, just mansplaining archaeology to her pretty much. <laughs> It's exactly what's going on. He's mansplaining, but he's also mansplaining badly because he is wrong. They get to the monastery. They manage to convince the monks to let them in, despite the fact neither of them speak French or Latin. And uh, and there's no reason to think this monk would speak English. I would like to point that out. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and they get down into the tunnel um, where she was earlier. They find the manuscripts, where which were there earlier, which I to me is very funny because she finds the exact same manuscripts that... Johnston had written on and it makes me think that in the 500 years so yeah obviously this happened in 1356 or whatever it was the monastery didn't close down that second and become ruins and buried and lost to time right that set of magazines or magazines manuscripts were sitting they are sitting in a magazine rack but those (laughs) little uh, manuscripts were still sitting in the same place 100 years later or 200 years later when the monastery fell into disuse Right. It does very much make it seem like the monastery just completely anything that happened in 1356 was the last thing that ever happened in the monastery, whereas probably kept going to like the French Revolution. So, oh, almost definitely. Well, would there and have been a, was there a cave in in that part? The cave in was not there now because the French were still able to come all the way through. Well, they weren't able to get through to the end where we find out that the Greek fire did their job. Right. Um, uh, but they find the hidden tunnel because she knocks in the uh, freeze. Uh, it's this really wall. nice piece of medieval art. And, yeah. and she, she just knocks it in. She feels bad. Yeah. yeah. She does feel bad. 
but she also feels vindicated. I'd love to if she'd have turned to Chris because the two of them act like they've discovered this together. I would love if she'd have turned and go, "What are you saying now, you douche?" Yeah, agreed. Yeah, there's a tunnel. What do you think? Now the other thing that's funny about this to me is, but he did say, out, "I told you so" when it didn't end, when it ended. No, that is true because they get into the tunnel, they go the whole way to the end, and it's not finished on the castle guard side. If it wasn't finished, why have they covered the entrance? This tunnel makes no sense, actually. Makes, <laughs> like, I'm not sure hidden... what it's supposed to accomplish. It's not supposed to it's... be a tunnel, is it? I thought it's, it's supposed yeah. to be just a secret place to hide out and pray or something. It's no, clean, well, it's, no, it's clearly not a very good prayer spot. But that's why they have all that, all those pictures. That's in the part oh, no. that, that's in the room they start in. There aren't that's any the nice frescoes in the tunnel part that they're climbing through. So they have to go from the room with the nice frescoes to the castle. Which is like five. Right, but I thought the away. frescoes are the things she She destroys. breaks the frescoes. But, but that's what I'm saying is the tunnel that she gets into, she breaks the frescoes to get into the hidden tunnel. But the hidden tunnel doesn't actually go. Like it goes towards Castle Guard. Yeah. But it doesn't have an entrance into Castle Guard at the end of it. Right, and there's nothing else happening in the tunnel itself, only in the room that they get to the tunnel from. And so it, it does, and the, the monks obviously weren't hanging out there because they would have had to break the mm. painting to hang out there. Yeah, so it's, it's basically covered up at both ends, one of which was just the natural thing because it was never finished. So they covered up the other entrance for no reason. Like, oh, we got a secret tunnel that goes to nowhere. But at the same time that this is happening, the French have started to attack Castle Guard Castle with uh, a goodly number of trebuchets. I feel like that's the most, like, let's try to sound medieval line I've ever heard. Um, as Beth just said there as well, trebuchets are beautiful. They are. They're, very, they're a very lovely piece of siege warfare. Uh, and they are physically, in the sense of how physics works, amazing. And the people who discovered them are started developing which were the French unbelievable the amount of force that's generated from a trebuchet to the point where regular catapults just don't come even close to creating that level of energy when they're throwing stuff now how they're managing to fire giant blowing fire covered rocks at the castle card walls um, that's less physically possible the rocks are probably covered in pitch they covered in pitch, but even if they were covered in pitch, when they hit the wall, they wouldn't explode as big. Yeah, the exploding is a bit much. The exploding thing is a bit much. They would just hit it and like leave pitch on the wall. They do a lot of damage. They do. They do a lot of damage. It's pretty good. Uh, Lord Oliver's just standing on the thing on the walls, and he's like, <laughs> oh, "Let's do something about those trebuchets." And uh, that's when it turns out that Johnson has managed to create Greek fire. Um. And they blow up one of the trebuchets. And after they destroyed one of the trebuchets, uh, Oliver decides to tell the English to let off the night arrows, which is one of the funniest things I've ever seen because night arrows are basically don't set your arrows on fire. Right, they're just regular arrows at night. They're painted black. No, they're not even painted. it's just that it's night and it's hard to see yeah. them. Yeah. Oh, I thought they were painted black so they'd be harder to see than when they're metal. But not in this movie. But it's nighttime. See, this is the problem because the first two volleys of arrows we get, they set them on fire. So they fire these fire arrows and like, oh, there's the fire arrows. Let's block it. And then the English to go fire the night arrows, which just means they don't set them on fire. 
and the French start getting shot. And they all, like, the French start shouting, night arrows, night arrows, uh, and running away. I'm like, oh, you could do the same thing, dudes. Yeah. Like, just don't set your arrows on fire. I mean, the French, the the English did have, you know, better archers, but the French had archers. Yes. Uh, The abbot then goes to Lord Arno and tells him that the... Chris and Kate have discovered the secret tunnel and that he should go to the abbey or to the abbey um, or the monastery and go through the tunnel. So him and a bunch of his men leave and join the tunnel to start heading towards the castle guard from the inside. At the same time, in an e- they start creating lots and lots of Greek fire in uh, castle guard, which apparently you can create in the space of one night. Because so it seems. They, 20 they, men? They, 20 men. And it's like, give me 20 men. And then they're going to start uh, producing all this great fire. And they also decide the story that we heard at the start was that they hung Claire from the battlements and Oliver starts threatening to hang Claire from the battlements. Yes. Uh, obviously, when Marek hears this, he is not happy because Anna Fried is very pretty. So what does Marek do, despite the fact that it is ridiculous? So Marek decides that changing history is definitely a really good idea. And uh, so he essentially uh, threatens to basically blow up, you know, basically like threatens to shoot the big canister of Greek fire and blow everyone up if they kill Claire. And Deckard says, no, he won't do that. That will kill Claire anyway. But Marek is a badass and he decides to do it. And he sets it off and we get this huge explosion. At the same time, Arno has managed to get up the tunnel to where Chris and Kate are sitting in the dark. And are very upset because they're at a dead end. I don't know why they didn't go back down the tunnel. No, I know. They were kind of sitting there freaking out. And then this whole basically French army comes up behind them. He starts yelling at them and saying that they've betrayed him. But then... And then... Boom! Everything goes boom. And the tunnel is opened. And again, if we look at the physics behind this, if there was a large enough explosion to take out what effectively is two feet of concrete... Everybody in the tunnel would be dead from the concussion. Um, just the sheer force that was involved in it and the, the, the energy waves would pass through the ground and they would all, they'd almost definitely be deaf, but they all managed to get out and we get a nice little battle as the French are inside the city walls or the Kazakhstan walls and they basically just chop up the English into lots of small pieces. Yes, so we have a couple of uh, climactic battles. Chris fights Oliver. Oliver, as we have seen, is a very good swordsman, and Chris knows nothing. So Chris completely <laughs> fails, but fortunately Arnaud comes up behind him and stabs Oliver, saying, For France, in English. <laughs> well, he wanted it's to make sure good. Oliver understood. <laughs> but he says it, he says it in, in like a, a French accent, like a, a French... Like, obviously, he's a Frenchman trying to speak English. But he says it in a very modern French accent. He's like, for France. As he pulls right. it, as he stabs him. Like, oh, it's terrible. Um, I I did love the fact that Chris tried to have a sword fight with Oliver after we had seen him fighting two men at once earlier. He's like, no, I'll right. take him. Yeah. It's like, no, I'm good. It's like, buddy, come on. At the same time, Marek is up saving Claire from Decker, who's just decided to go full evil at this point. So um, he is fighting Decker. Decker is getting the better of him. Um, and then he cuts off Marek's ear. And I have no idea the logic that goes through Marek's head is. Like, he gets the ear cut off, and then he says to himself, 
I'm the guy from the statue earlier. I kind of so like therefore- this scene. I will admit that he like had this whole like thing that he'd built up in his head, this whole like romantic story about the ear and the statue with the ear. And then he realizes once his ear gets cut off that like, I get to stay. I get to like marry Claire because I guess probably she's the woman. There aren't any other women around here. The book has, as I said, has none of this romance, none of this Claire on the battlements, nothing, no sarcophagi, no missing ears. But it's worth having all that stuff just for the scene of Marek holding his ear and jumping up and down and saying, it's me, it's me, which is one of the most <laughs> joyous scenes in the history of film. It's gorgeous. It is. It's me, it's me. And then despite the fact he was having a sword fight and losing, he then suddenly becomes a god of war and defeats Marek in like three blows and stabs him, or not Marek, uh, Decker in three blows and stabs him through the heart. And then he dies. Um, and then we had a lovely scene where he's going up to get the little tchotchke from the deck, the little medallion for taking him home. And Decker, still awake, grabs him and says, take my body back with you. Why? Why would he? Like, what, yeah, what why would you do reason? this guy any favors? <laughs> I could do you any favors, you douche. Um, but yeah, so they don't. Uh, now, at this point, uh, we find they're obviously very close to needing to get time to get out because they're running down on their time. As uh, as Beth said, the book takes 36 hours. The movie is set over a six-hour time period. Um, they need to get back as soon as possible because the timer is running out. Cut back to the modern time where Remus Lupin has gone full evil now. He gets into a fight with his subordinate. Um, and then even though they've managed to get a machine just about finished and ready to go, he runs in and starts trying to rip out the pipes. And they specifically say he's going for the pipes. There are no pipes visible at any point in Right, why doesn't he just like smash one of those weird mirrors? Smash one of the mirrors like it's made out of glass. Just smash it. But he's going for the pipes. They turn on the machine and the physicist who's there runs up and grabs him by the leg and pulls him a little bit. And the machine starts to close on him. Because the other people are trying to come back. Because the other people are trying to come back, right? He's still in the same place where he was trying to pull the pipes out a second ago. And he doesn't go to start pulling the pipes out again. He just like stands there and goes, oh no, I don't have a medallion. I won't be able to come back. Yes. Rip out the pipes, dude. You still have time. Like just grab them with two hands and rip them out. Like. Though I could see if once the thing is set, based on the logic, at least, of this movie, I could see that once the whole process was set in motion, if he messed up the machine in the middle, that it would, like, rip his body in half or something. Yeah, but I at that point, I'd take killing them if I know I'm going to die. Right. I'm just going to take everybody with me. Yeah. So he gets sent back to the Middle Ages. They are come back to the present. Um, and it turns out that him not being able to come back is not a major problem because literally <laughs> the second he gets there, there is some random knight charging toward him with a sword out. So he's clearly dying. And he gets cut into, and it's great because bye bye Lupin, you're dead now. And they all come back and everything's great. Um, and then they finish the excavation on the um, sarcophagus, which Jared Butler had been talking about earlier. 
Chris now has his PhD for some reason. I'm not sure. Right. He reappears at the site and he seems to like be in charge now, basically. Um, mm-hmm. It's like, I'm, I'm sorry. How, how did you what, get a PhD in medieval history in like two months? Well, he's managed it. Uh, and it turns out that there was writing on the side and the side of the sarcophagus tells us that it was Marek and Claire who were the two people in the sarcophagus. And there's a little message there to their children, Kate, Chris and Francois. Now, I don't know if they actually, if is this just saying that Mark made this uh, thing? Did they have three children is what I'm getting at? Or is this just his way of sending a message to Kate, Chris, and Francois? I mean, given that he would have had to have somebody write the message for him after he died, it seems weird that somebody would have agreed to do that if he didn't have actual children with those names. Is that true? You can't have your sarcophagus decorated in advance? I mean, I guess he could no, have, serious. but most people actually didn't. Okay. And those are just, nice medieval names. I mean, you could have those names for your kids. Yeah, it those, are, those really are legitimate wacky. names to give your children. They are. But that's what I'm saying. Is did, Do you think they actually did have children? Or because he specifically says something along the lines of, like, these are my three children. Thank you for everything you did for me. You helped me have a great life in a time when I was meant to be. I think it's which... both. I thought it was a double meaning. I thought yeah. there were actual children. Yeah. And that and he then... is sending a message. Yeah. At, but partly naming the children that way is going to send the message. Which also I kind of like thought about like on the one hand, they're like real medieval names. It's not like they have ridiculous names or anything. But I feel like if those were his actual three children, like Claire's going to be like, no, but like, shouldn't we like have like name one of our sons like our no after my brother or like? Yeah, presumably there's or, a father. The other question also named is, Arno, let's be honest, whether or not that writing was on the sarcophagus when they found it the first time. They oh, had because they hadn't finished the excavating it, and yeah. so we don't know. Right. But I also have another problem. We now know that Marek is back in the past, right? Why didn't he go down and write stuff in the manuscript, which is in the basement of the uh, monastery? He's not there anymore. Like he's right like, next yeah, to it. When he's there, he's. I think. He's it, oh, you mean one of the times he like takes over Castleguard because that's where his sarcophagus is. He's the lord. It says he's the lord of Castleguard now. Uh, okay. Yeah, so, so, oh so. well, I didn't realize that because. It, it's the sort of this double vision in the book. He's actually, they have to go to England to find the, his yeah. gravestones. But, no, but yeah, okay. His, yeah. His so he's, they're all in, still in France, in the monastery. which doesn't yeah. make any sense. But yeah. So I just really wanted to know, like, why didn't he drop down to the basement and write down, oh, by the way, it's me, Marek, Francois, don't come back with us. Yeah. Because Francois dies because he's the only one who speaks French. Well, that's book. the problem yeah. of the of the loop. Exactly. Be- right. Because obviously in the history that he knows, she's dead. Then she's not dead. But the French win anyway, so it doesn't really change history that much, right? Right, because they find the tunnel. Right. But it's it's a paradox. Yeah. I just think Marek was just being lazy. Just sends a couple of messages. Like, I mean, even on the side of your tombstone, like write other stuff. Like, like this, as uh, Sarah said, like 
after you're dead, just convince him to write any sort of shenanigans on the side of it. Hey, Chris, Kate, I hope you two crazy kids got together. Uh, <laughs> I'm perfectly happy here. Claire and myself are, are perfectly happy here. I really do miss good toast. But what if really he did change bathrooms. history enough that yeah. somebody else would discover the site? Or not discover the site? I mean, surely yeah, he must true. realize yeah. that, especially if he has children and this and that, he has, in certain ways, possibly changed things. Yeah. And he won't know who's going to discover it. This. That's true. It really, I mean, none of that, but because of that, none of it actually makes any sense. I mean. Right. That's that's the, the loop problem. Yes. Yeah, this is where you need um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt to just shoot Bruce Willis. But that's the end, that's the end of the movie. So, and George Red Butler. Um, and we get this, and I, I think it's a kind of a nice kind of ending to the movie. Yeah, so, oh, wonderful. Jared Butler lived a nice life. Although, technically, he did die pretty early because if the movie was set in 18, or 1356 and he died in 1381, that's another 25 years. Oh, that's all? Yeah, 26 years. Um, oh, did it say 1381? Yeah. Yeah, thirteen eighty one, and uh, he himself was thirty because he was born in seventy one. And that actually gets also into a common fifty six, fifty seven. Yeah, which also gets into a common misconception about the Middle Ages, right? um, Which is that everyone had a very short lifespan, and that actually is not the case. It's just that the average is brought down because infant mortality is so high, and women dying in childbirth is so common. But if you're a man who lives to the age of 30, especially if you've had the benefit of modern medical care until age 30, unless somebody kills him in a battle, I feel like he should have lived till at least like 70 or 80. And had five wives. Right, yeah. Which now brings us into our next section. And I imagine this is going to take longer than usual (laughs) on this because, right, it's just just what they got right and what they got wrong. There it falls down. Uh, Sarah, did they get anything right in this movie? So uh, the one thing I will say that is not too off is actually some of the stuff, surprisingly enough, about Greek fire. So uh, Greek fire is a weapon used uh, not in the West, but primarily in the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Empire. It's described in Chronicles as early as about the 7th century. And at least according to the reports we have, it really was something that could burn on water. And according to some reports, even water would make it would make it burn more, which is what we see in the movie. Um, Mm -hmm. However, although this was something that existed and that it's certainly something that people in the West very much would have been aware of and would have loved to have gotten for themselves. It is something that probably was not current even in the Byzantine Empire at this point. It actually seems to have been a military secret that was guarded so jealously that it ended up being completely lost, even in the Eastern Roman Empire itself. Um, So while they would have loved to have gotten their hands on it, no medieval historian going back in time would have actually had a foolproof recipe for making Greek fire. We have a couple of um, things in Chronicles here and there that talk about how it that you know give us some hint as to how it might have been made but scholars and i think even they've gotten some scientists in on this too are actually still arguing about it and nobody has come up with anything that is exactly what greek fire is described as being it's almost impossible to find something which will do the job of greek fire the closest thing you're going to get 
even now, and it did right not to explain how to do this, right? But if you get polystyrene um, and put it into petrol, it will start to dissolve and it forms into a very thick, gloopy uh, mass. But the, the, the polymer breaks down and you're left with the monomers, which reform with the petrol ions or the petrol uh, atoms, atoms, molecules. Uh, and it forms this kind of a paste. And that has most of the properties of Greek fire. However, it's also what we'd like to call napalm. And right. that's what we used back in the thing. And it's not, it doesn't have the same liquid consistency that Greek fire was described as having. Right. But um, could they have the gotten the ingredients it, for it? Uh, no, it's very hard to get the ingredients because it's hard yeah. to get something to form into a liquid that will still burn at the high octane values that they talk about. So Greek right. fire is like the closest we're going to get to Greek fire is watching an episode of Game of Thrones where they loose wildfire. Like that's about as yeah. close as you're going to get to it in modern context. It's almost impossible to come up with something which burns that brightly and still has the consistency to spread with water. So even something like jet fuel, which burns pretty much hotter than anything we can, any other liquid that we can create, because um, it's effectively almost a gas at that point. When you put water on it, it'll go out. It won't spread it. Whereas water, right. like Greek fire definitely spread with water and burned brighter with water. Like meaning right. that it was likely to contain um, some sort of either lithium or potassium salt at some stage. Yeah, so I don't think there's any chance they actually could have made Greek fire, but promising to produce Greek fire for the English is actually a pretty good idea to, as a story to tell them in terms of making it seem like you're useful. Um, so I would have liked it more if then obviously he couldn't produce it and then had to take off. Um, because that would have made much more sense. But it is at least a kind of good idea as, as I said, as a way to essentially present yourself as being potentially useful to claim that you have the secret of making Greek fire. Yeah, that sounds, it does sound like something you would expect from, it's like a Wizard of Oz situation. It's like, I right. can do all of these things, but don't expect me to actually do them. Right. Um, it turns out the Greek fire was inside you all along, Lord Oliver. <laughs> It's a syphilis. <laughs> uh, Sarah, can you tell me about the Hundred Years' War? First of all, did it last for a hundred years? It lasted for a little over a hundred years. So uh, that is something that also irritated me somewhat in this movie, is that uh, so the Hundred Years' War lasts from about, I think it's 1337 to 1453. They imply that this is a very kind of climactic event that leads essentially to the French managing to drive out the English who are invading France. That's what the Hundred Years' War is. But in reality, they're not doing that. I mean, well, they're not doing that for another hundred years. And of course, at the end, it's actually in part that just everybody is exhausted because they've been at war for a century. Um, so it's actually in some ways the war kind of trails off as opposed to climactic. But it trails ending. off with the England English out of France. Yes, it trails off with the English leaving, but that happens nearly a full century after the events of this movie in 1453. Um, the other thing I'd like to note is that the character of lady claire is pretty implausible she seems to be just kind of wandering around in a war zone and maybe acting as a spy it's not very likely that somebody would have decided this is a great idea for a medieval noble woman to do um but 
I've watched a lot of movies and medieval noble women seem to have like a crazy amount of freedom. Surely that's true. It's not. They have far more ability to just wander around in war zones uh, than in movies than they did in reality. Medieval noble women were actually relatively well supervised and people what? were generally very concerned about protecting them. Now, if Claire had been in Scotland, say, do you think she could have hooked up with William Wallace? It would have been a little, well, he would have been a bit old for her. And also, I guess, a bit dead for her. (laughs) The dead was probably more of a difficult situation. Yeah, since we're about 40 years after William Wallace died. The dates are also off, by the way, too, I think, because she says that they've been fighting the English since before she was born. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's a little bit of a stretch because that would have been 1337 to 1357, I I don't know. I would in terms of how they're playing her, I would have guessed she's supposed to be maybe twenty one or twenty two, so it's not it's a little it's a little much, but Yeah. Um so the Hundred Years War was actually hundred and twenty years. Yes, or hundred and sixteen, I think is what it comes out as exactly. Another long century. <laughs> yes, it's the long <laughs> the long hundred years war. Um uh, but yeah, so it's a bit over 100 years, uh, and we're essentially at the beginning of it now. So I could see the argument that actually it doesn't really matter who wins this particular battle, because honestly, any battle that happened in 1357 is all but irrelevant for the ultimate trajectory of the war. Maybe when she said before I was born, she actually meant before she came of age. Maybe. Uh, no, I'm just trying to defend the movie. The movie's, I mean, the movie's amazing. Yeah. Um, but uh, you you don't have to you don't have to defend this movie. <laughs> um, um, wait, no, Claire. Oh, sorry, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I meant Sarah. Sarah. Uh, so we have the Hundred Years' War, which was slightly more than hundred years, and the movie seems to just get it completely wrong. Um, was there anybody in the movie who actually existed as a real person? Yeah, so um, Claire's brother, Arnaud de Cervol, is actually a real historical person, but they seem to have really just taken the name and then done something completely different. Wait, so are you telling me that this is a true historical fact you're about to tell me? Yes, it is. Ah, so it would be a historia et veritas. Indeed. (laughs) Solid singing. So this is just so we know, Sarah. This is where I'm gonna cut in you singing um, some Bruce Springsteen. Nope. Just after you said solid singing, describing my abilities to sing. Nope. Definitely. <laughs> so, Arnaud de Serval was a member of the lower nobility who was known uh, throughout his life as the archpriest because early on in his lifetime he was the holder of an ecclesiastical fief. So basically, this just means that it's technically church property and that he holds it from the local archbishop. Um, But so he had this nickname, despite the fact that he wasn't actually in holy orders. He wasn't actually a cleric. However, if you're the holder of an ecclesiastical fief, there are slightly higher standards for your behavior than there are if you're just holder of a regular fief. And so the archbishop ultimately chooses to strip him of his title because he is associating with brigands and essentially is himself a brigand. Um, Ah, So this is actually, yeah. Medieval period, 
everyone was a brigand. So not everybody, but the Hundred Years' War is actually one of the periods where there really are marauding brigands all the time because a hundred years of warfare is not especially good for a country. And so honestly, everything is tied to a mess. Right, what? There's no food. Right, there's no food. And so since no one has food, um, there are all of these men that are essentially wandering around stealing food. Many of them are sometimes fighting basically as the French army, sometimes not, um, uh, and essentially just constantly plundering. So... uh, in the movie, he seems like this just completely normal member of the French nobility, but in reality, what he was is essentially a brigand who then gradually transitioned into being more of a kind of full-fledged mercenary in some sense. So uh, he ended up actually running basically a major mercenary company, which was most of the time at least under the employ of the French kings um, and fighting on the French behalf during the Hundred Years' War. Well, he's not very well-dressed either. He wasn't, no. Oliver was, but he was Oliver not. is much better dressed. Um, well, the British or the English do have a, a good sense of dress in fairness to them. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the French only learned how to dress later after the Middle, after the middle Ages. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, but he manages to actually be quite successful because he basically blends more standard military tactics and uh, banditry. Um I mean, how many... The mercenaries are from other countries, yes? It's a multinational company. Because you must lose most of your soldiers of your own nationality. I mean, so some of them are local French people, but he does end up running essentially a kind of multinational, multilingual mercenary company called The Great Company. Um, Yes, it's people from all over the place who basically just find out, okay, this is something I can do, and they sort of wander into France, and then they join The Great Company under the command of Arnaud de Cervol. Um, so he was somebody who was very active in 1357. He had made a name for himself at a battle. He managed to get a rich widow to marry. So that's the downside of being a rich widow is that then sometimes they actually make you marry one of these people. Um, (laughs) he was cute. (laughs) (laughs) He's the Merovingian in, uh, the Matrix. That's right. Ooh, I love Merovingians. It doesn't mean the same thing in the Matrix. Oh, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) um and so for much of the time he is fighting for france but he also has a number of other engagements so some of this is just straight up plundering he also at some point goes to avignon which is where the papacy is currently based in this period and essentially extorts twenty thousand gold florins out of the pope in order to basically have him leave Avignon and also not plunder the other papal lands. And um, so the Pope is based in Avignon. He's perfectly happy for the Pope to remain in Avignon. He's not one of the people trying to get the Pope to come back oh, to Rome. Um, Jared, so this yeah. is there's still only one Pope at this point. This isn't when we've got two Popes. This is a little before still. Um, this is about 20 years. So right now there's just the one Pope in Avignon. In about 20 years from uh, this period, um, there will be you know, a second Pope as the Pope tries to return to Rome and some French people are not happy about it. And so then you have a Pope in Rome and one in Avignon. Um, But as I said, he's not opposed at all to the Pope being in Avignon, but really just wants to extort money out of him. That's really all it is. So he says, so it says that he says that he'll, that Arnaud and his mercenaries will basically leave the Pope and his land in France alone in exchange for getting all of this in exchange for getting all of this money. Did the rich widow run out of money? 
Or did he just needed to pay the mercenaries? I think he needed to pay the mercenaries. That's the kind of constant issue is that he needs to pay the right, mercenaries. Um, despite this rather inauspicious beginning to his relationship with the papacy, they actually attempted to send him and his company on crusade. Um, but basically they never stopped plundering the Holy Roman Empire. So they never went on crusade. Um, and instead during this period, while they're busy plundering the Holy Roman Empire, Arno gets murdered by one of his own men, which is somewhat of an occupational hazard of being a mercenary. That's sad. Yeah. Yeah. So he Uh, dies in 1366. Yeah. Well, he probably deserved it. I imagine he wasn't paying his men. Yes, he was. That's why he got the money from the Pope. They seem to have just, yeah, they were having a fight about something. I'm not sure if it's it's money or tactics or what? Dice. Dice, yeah. It might have just been a kind of completely random fight because that's a problem when you're basically hanging out with a bunch of people who are professional murderers. Or a woman. He might have wanted to protect a woman from his mercenaries. Or they were just fighting over who got to sleep with the prostitute next. I think Beth seems to like Arno a lot more than Sarah does. Because <laughs> um, she's really willing to defend him. And I think that might be because he was a better character in the book. Uh, Beth, was there much of a difference between this movie and the book? Oh, God. <laughs> the biggest difference, I think, is that, besides the fact that they really had medievalists, um, is putting in all the romance. The Kate and Chris thing is ridiculous. It didn't happen, and they put it in here. And um, the Marrick Lady Claire thing is not. In, I mean, she sell at some point when they escape. They escape, and then they're free. And then Lady Claire says, "There they are. There are your prisoners." So <laughs> she'll really. She's an opportunist. She's a totally self-absorbed opportunist. Which she's so that's her character is totally different, and she has a personality. It's just not a very good one. But um, that romance, I think, helps in the movie a lot. It's it's beautiful. It, it I mean, even the silly parts. I mean, the part on the raft is like poor Leonardo DiCaprio. You know, why why can't he be in the boat too? You know, why is he swimming alongside her? So other than the flaws, like what language they're speaking and the fact that he doesn't know how to say, did your brother arrange for you to marry somebody? The the romance, which doesn't exist, is... Because is, the thing they say in the epilogue is they find the tombstones, they know they got married and that they had children, and it's then the paleographer finds documents which says <laughs> he decided to escort her back to England and didn't seem to care about the rumors that she murdered her first husband. <laughs> so she's really totally different, but that's okay. <laughs> so I think I like the Claire that, yeah. in the book better because she at least had a personality beyond a French accent. The the Claire in the movie is very pretty, and that's it. That's a, that's literally all I can say to describe her. She's got distractingly red hair. Yeah, what but is she that, saves Chris like, in the beginning? No, she doesn't. She doesn't save anybody. No, I don't think she, she doesn't does. save anybody. Literally, she's hiding under the ruins, and then um, oh okay, oh right, right. right. Ar- Arno saves her, or not Arno? Um, Marek saves her. Yeah, um, by stabbing a dude. With his sword. Yeah. 
Kate also then seems like remarkably tolerant of uh, this person who no has who has no idea what he's talking about and is just you know not an expert at all in her field, just mansplaining her field to her constantly and telling her she's wrong. So it's kind of a weird portrayal of women on the whole. He's Chris has very beautiful eyes, though. Yeah, I don't think the beautiful eyes are gonna quite make up for that extent of mansplaining. And I don't think that rubbing her hand with your palm is really going to either give her food or help her escape. She's just wasting her time. Yeah, that is true. Mm -hmm. And he does creep on her a little bit at the beginning when they're looking at the computer screen because he's got like his arms around her and stuff. Oh, yeah. And she is creeped out. She also like he puts his arm around her when they're all like sad about the professor maybe being like missing or (laughs) dead. And she's like, oh, I guess, uh, you know, my father and your advisor might be dead. I guess that's a good excuse for me to put my arm around you. And she does give him the side eye. She does. Yeah. She gives her a little bit of side eye, but really she side eyes him in a, Ah, oh, you're so pretty, Chris. <laughs> like, now that now that your dad and my advisor are gone, I'm totally down for this. <laughs> like, it's just... That romance is terrible. And no. I also think Claire and Marek is terrible. But I think all romances in movies are pretty much bad these days anyway, so we don't have time to set them up. Are there any yeah. other major differences, Beth? Well, there's the fact that Michael Crichton likes the Middle Ages. <laughs> And he says the whole idea of it being a brutal period with nothing going on except people killing each other is an invention of the Renaissance so they would look better. Right. And that is very much the case. Um, This movie, however, seems very intent on portraying the Middle Ages as violent. (laughs) And of course, when Marek stays, he doesn't stay for Lady Claire. Right. He stays because he loves the Middle Ages and has since he was six. Right. Though part of what he likes about it is living on the edge of death and disease and murder. Because <laughs> 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 it's Chris who's into the technology. <laughs> right. And as it's the, dis- the, own- the disappearance oh. of women. Yeah. I mean, there are at least like six characters and some of them have bigger roles than others. That Kramer person in the shark skin suit with the big shoulders who doesn't do a whole hell of a lot in the movie except get knocked out and possibly killed at the yeah. end when Donzinger oh, right. when McDonough going likes, nuts. And Neil McDonough like straight up murders a dude. Yeah, well, yeah, but that's a woman. Or no, Lupin, sorry. She's alive at the end. She's helping them get the people back. She has a pretty big role to play as his lawyer and fixer. And she's gone. <laughs> now she's a guy in a sharkskin suit. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so we now move on to our next section. Our next section is where we like to come up with our own version of the movie. Um, and we have to take the name and maybe even the general premise and come up with our own version of what it would be. This is what we call Fabula Nostra. And Sarah, I'm going to let you go first because I'm intrigued by what you've put inside some square parentheses for me, which is that you've come up with casting, but you're going to keep it as a surprise. And I don't even yes. understand the category. So... This title, I think, obviously lends itself to a time travel movie. Um, But I would like to have a time travel movie that actually, first of all, involves some medievalists who have ever learned a language. 
Um, I'm fine with them basically going back in time and then just speaking in French accents, but they're going to pretend that they're speaking French. Um, and they're going to pretend that they are competent medievalists who know something about history and act accordingly. Um, because I do like the idea of medievalists getting to go back in time because, you know, I will say one of the few scenes that really rang true to me is that she like looks at a wall and she goes like, oh, I got that part completely wrong. And I think that would be a fun experience. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but the other thing that I would like to do is if I were making a time travel movie, I would like to delve a bit more into the ways in which time travel is actually really terrible if you're not a white man. Yeah, that's true. Um, because, you know, society in most pre-modern eras is really primarily conducive to you being a white man. And there are going to be all sorts of things that you're going to have to explain if you're not a white person potentially and there are going to be all sorts of issues that are going to come up if you're a woman and you want to you know be able to take on a more active role um and this is going to be something that you're going to have to wrestle with mm -hmm. um so i'm going to have my two main medievalists who are going to go back in time are going to be Charlize theron and idris elba can't just keep sucking me in with the Idris casting, Sarah. Yes, I think but Idris he's going to be the next James movie. Bond. I know he's going to be the next James Bond, and I think he should be in every movie. <laughs> he should be in every movie. He won't be the next James Bond because they're going to give it to another pale, pasty white guy. Probably uh, a Hiddleston so. or somebody. Yeah. <laughs> well, if he's James Bond, I'll understand if he bows out and uh, I have to cast Michael B. Jordan instead. But <laughs> if Idris Elba, but if Idris Elba is not Bond and has some free time, he can he's going to be in this movie. Okay, perfect. So he is. Wait. So if Idris Elba is Bond, you would cast Michael B. Jordan as your historian. Yes, they're they're both going to be historians. Oh, no, I he means really if Idris Elba's in a different movie and doesn't have time to be in Yes, if Idris Elba is in a different movie and doesn't have time to be in my movie, then my alternate casting is Michael B. Jordan. See, I was getting excited at the idea of Michael B. Jordan being Bond. Oh, that would also, oh, that... I would also be up for that, though I can't imagine so, them casting a non-British person as Bond. Could you imagine them casting, well, they cast Pierce Brosnan. That's true. I can't imagine them casting an American as Bond. Uh, they cast George Lazenby. He's Australian. Yeah, but that didn't go yeah, well. Yeah, but he's still Commonwealth. <laughs> God damn what is Craig? He's not Craig an American. British. No. No he's, uh, no, he's British. He's from uh, he's from Sheffield, I think. He's from the same place as Sean yeah. Bean, I think. Who knew? Yeah. Except he survives way more movies. Um, that sounds really interesting, Sarah. So I went for something completely different. Now, one of my pet peeves is fake sides and uh the idea of time travel coming up and then they always find some way to just kind of either fuff it around it or they come up with science which makes no sense whatsoever so i'm going to take the idea of timeline and i'm going to take the time aspect as one section and then the line i'm going to talk about as lineage through blood from one uh, one generation to another and i'm going mm -hmm. to involve faith and what i'm going to suggest is that back in the middle ages um, a man of religion um, prays to God that he finds a way to save his family and God just moves them forward in time to a modern society and mm. unlike 
all other movies which have people going back in time and then wanting to get back to the modern society. I want these people in medieval ages to come forward in time and realize that it actually sucks now <clears throat> in the 21st century and they want to go back to the medieval ages and then the rest of the movie is them trying to reconnect with God and get back to the medieval time to live a, a simpler and better life. So it's kind of turning the trope on its head of going back into the past and then needing to get back into the future. So they're coming from the past through the medium of some sort of religious ceremony and then they need to get back into the past. And that's what it's going to be. So it's timeline, but they're going to move effectively transporting. Maybe I was thinking about possibly transporting personalities from one family member to another or you know somebody in your ancestors or or something along those lines. I haven't quite fleshed it out. Um, and I'm going to cast Gar Gary Oldman as the father. Oh. Uh, and I think... <sighs> who would I cast as the children? Um, random white boy number one. Let's just say Ansel Elgort. <laughs> because I'm going to cast one of them in all of my movies. And for the lady, let's just say Emma Stone. And just to make it a true Hollywood movie, it's Gary Oldman, Ansel Elgort, and... Emma Stone, and they're playing a French family. Mm. Will they speak in French accents? They, when they get into the future, they will speak in French accents. Amazing. But they'll also have perfect English. Of course. Um, and now we get on to our last section. The last section is where we give our final... Wait a minute. I, want oh, wait, to say, I, I don't have oh. casting because I just thought of this, and it's partly because what Sarah and I were talking oh, about perfect. early, early, but I would like to make a timeline movie like Jumanji... Where the people Ooh. who go back in time get to pick the avatars and who they're going to be. Hmm. And that then somehow that changes them, yada, yada. So that that's So like like the, the new version of... The newest, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With The Rock. With The Rock. Which is a great, fun little movie. Maybe I'll put The Rock and I really like him. That's the first <laughs> time I've ever seen him in a movie. <laughs> You should watch the Fast I want and the, Furious the movies. The Rock and Jason Statham. You should watch the Fast and the Furious movies. <laughs> Beth, uh, I saw the Frank. Rock and Jason, the the Rock and Jason Statham are going to be in a movie next year, <gasps> and uh, and I am so excited. It's not even funny. I'm buying my tickets today. To you is have it to going to be a good first, movie. You have to watch the first eight it's, Fast and Furious movies first. Oh, is this a sequel Beth, to that? Is it's that kind of you, a spinoff? It's it's a spinoff. The the idea is that both of those guys were brought in as bad guys in the series. Well, not well. The Rock was not a bad guy; he's a police officer, but. He's the brought in as antagonists to yeah. the main guys, but then every like it's you can't not love the Rock and you can't not love Jason. That's Stewart. what I told you. Yeah. So they're now getting their own spin-off <gasps> as like, and that's how they're so popular that they've stopped making the Fast and the Furious movies to make one about these two guys. Okay, yeah. I'm in. Let's meet Jason Statham. Jason Statham is he's wonderful. I love him. He is great in this. He's great in everything. Though sometimes I have to put subtitles it. on if it's a, you know, Guy Ritchie movie. What? Jason Statham, what's on up this That's bit? the problem. What are you talking about? Yeah, all good apples and stairs, you know what I mean, yeah? Um, but now we get to our uh, estimate. That, that, uh, yeah, cast the rock and Jason Statham in that movie, and I'll definitely be there in the, this version of Tiny <laughs> Jumanji type style. So... We're going to get to our summing up in the state. Estimatio. God, I can't <laughs> even do this. It's, a, it's hard enough when Sarah's the one looking at me. Our mom's looking at me like, why the fuck is he singing? But anyway, um, I'm just trying to understand so the Latin. Estimatio uh, means reading. 
Oh, oh, it does? Ratings. More or less. They had ratings? Uh, not exactly. It's or the best I could do. It's the closest, Sarah. I mean, her language is really let us down, Beth. Uh, <laughs> how would you rate this? Estimadio. Yes. Mm-hmm. I've already sung that. <laughs> so, I am giving this movie a two out of five. Oh! Oh! Sacrilege! Oh! So. Uh, oh my God! Two out of. You. You're gonna be disowned. I am justifying this. So my big thing about this movie really is the languages, the combination of the amount of medieval historians who have not learned a single language as part of their PhD program or research, combined with the amount of medieval French people who inexplicably speak English, which at least in the movie version, they have no reason to whatsoever. It drives me insane. Um... (laughs) Yeah, I really just like that knocks it down a lot for me, to be honest. Um, I will say the cast is at least mostly enjoyable. Um, the ear scene is very charming. That's what's giving it some points. Oh. Um, but I really just cannot with a movie that gets wrong, not only a decent amount about the Hundred Years War, but also about what it's like to be a medieval historian. I mean, it actually kind of makes sense that Paul Walker got his PhD in two months because what was he even doing? It's not like he had to learn a single language and therefore I have no idea how he could have done enough research to write a dissertation. So so because of that, this movie from me is getting a two out of five. Uh, Beth, how would you... uh, Well, I used to give it a five and then I read the book and watched it again and it was really irritating me. And I just kept saying, stop, stop the tape and yelling. And my husband said, no, no, you don't believe that. You always believe there are two different media, that something on film is one thing and something in a book is another thing. And you can't judge them by how they're different from each other. And I said, that's true. That's true. So, so then I began to love it again. And, um, as I said, the ear scene is like one of the best scenes in the entire history of movies. It's so something that gives you that much joy and watching Gerard Butler is, is always a pleasure. And, um, At I'll least still he's give singing. it a four. I'll give it a four, 4.2. We don't do point a point system. It's four out of five or five. He can cut out the point two. Fine. Right. Um, So I think this movie is a masterpiece. Um, I loved every second Uh I was watching it. And I am going to give it a full one out of five um, because I was joking about that. I think this is terrible. I think the acting is terrible. I think the action is terrible. I think the casting is off in every single place that they've cast an actor stroke actress you don't like paul walker you don't you don't like brian o'connor as i i love brian o'connor and i i enjoy now looking at paul walker but i cannot have him in this movie his character makes no sense him going back in time makes no sense it doesn't uh any of them that go back in time make no sense their logic for bringing francois makes no sense all of it is senseless and 
badly acted and badly organized and I, I oh it's the kind of movie which a couple of years ago I might have given it a two out of five but I've I've grown as a person <laughs> but didn't I, you have fun and I <laughs> I had fun joking with it with Sarah because it's always fun joking about movies with Sarah but the movie itself terrible 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 do not watch this I would even go so far as to recommend watching Russell Crowe's Robin Hood over oh, this. God. I wouldn't go that far. I think this is a more enjoyable movie than Russell Crowe's Robin Hood, hence it getting a two out of five. I, yeah. But we can agree to disagree. <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, look, it, it's it's fine. It's a one out of five, but it's the kind of one out of five where if you have the right company, you're going to have a, a ball of time a ball of a good ball of fun thinking of making fun out of it um but yeah other than that there shocking movie yeah and, and just for have... the record i love jared butler and i love his movies but he's just woefully miscast in this i feel like i can't see gerard butler as woefully miscast in anything else after having seen him play the phantom and phantom of the opera and that is the worst gerard butler and so really nothing else uh, can be worse. I'd agree with that. I would take I, I would take him singing in the Phantom of the Opera. Oh my god. Having to watch He was nearly he was movie. better than Russell Crowe in um Les Miserables. Not by much. And you know how I feel about Russell Crowe. Not by much, but he was better. Two, four, six, oh one. <laughs> <laughs> um I like the Les Miserables though. It's fun. It's a fun movie. I liked that more than oh, I liked certainly the Phantom of the Opera, not at least. <laughs> It's the most oh, depressing really three this, hours it? in the world. <laughs> oh, come on. I actually oh, no, I love it. Hours. I just wouldn't call it fun. I mean, I've seen it five oh, or six okay. times. Yeah, I and the Tenardis. The Tenardis are fun. actually great. Like, that's they a really are. solid casting. They are. That's, Sasha Baron that's Cohen great. and um, Helena Bonham Carter. Like, that's the ideal casting for the Tenardis. It was the only good casting in that movie. Sarah, what movie are we going to do next week? So next week, we are going to return to King Arthur, who it's been a few weeks since we've seen. And we are going to do King Arthur Legend of the Sword, which came out in 2017. So it is, I believe, the newest King Arthur movie. And it will be very exciting to see what this take is, because it is definitely not your daddy's King Arthur. Are you telling me that we're going from timeline to a worse movie we just might well do we do we give zero ratings we can give negative ratings <laughs> although i haven't said that i i kind of i think if i watch this again i might like it a little bit more than i did the first time isn't the You'll king see. arthur cute though who plays him charlie hunnam i think oh i don't think he's, he's very oh, blonde. He's not cute. Yeah. never mind you can go back to yeah, zero. It's okay. I mean, like, I mean, he's he's ripped. He kind of looks like a neo-Nazi. He does look like a neo-Nazi. He looks a bit like Neil McDonough in this movie. <laughs> he does. He's ripped. But, Sarah, would you like to tell people how they can get in contact with us? I would love to. So, first of all, if you have been enjoying this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcasting platform. And also, if you have any feedback for us, we encourage you to get in touch with us via email 
Our email address is media.evilpod at gmail.com. That's M-E-D-I-A dot E-V-A-L at gmail.com. And uh, you can also find us on Twitter at MediaEvilPod, where I will occasionally tweet things relevant to this podcast and the Middle Ages. And I will never tweet because I do not know how. If you want to find me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me under my real name. So you can find me at Sarah H. Decker on either of those platforms. Um, and Ollie, where else can they find you on the internet? You can find me at my other podcast. I do one called Best Acquaintances with my best friend Emily. I recommend it to everybody. So it's called Best Acquaintances. And you can find us in the Best Acquaintances podcast group on Facebook as well, which is just full of nice people doing nice stuff. Absolutely. That's good. And mom, is there anywhere people can find you on the internet? Well, we looked up the name of my Twitter account, <laughs> Beth G, B-E-T-H-G 20904. Is uh-huh. that what it was? And um, 20904. Right. <laughs> and I tend to write novels that take place in two time periods, but there's no time travel. There's just people who find themselves inexplicably going in and out of different time periods. They just do in their oh. heads. They're there and they just see things and they can't they change have anything. Then they're not there anymore. Beth, it was an absolute pleasure. Uh, is there anything you would like to say just about... Was this your first podcasting experience? Yes, though I was on radio in the early 70s. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the new radio of the internet. It's the new radio of the internet. No, thank you very, very much for having me. I've had a great time. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on. I think pleasure. the first time I saw this movie was with you, so... I'm sure. Um, All right. The first time I saw this movie... I erased it from my mind. <laughs> um, it was a good time. See, I've just been complaining uh, about it for a decade. <laughs> Sarah, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. You too. For doing the podcast again. And, and talk to you again next week. And look forward to chatting next week. Yes. All right. Goodbye, Bye. Everybody.